Well, good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. I ask you to take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of 1 Timothy this morning. If you don't have a Bible, grab that pew Bible uh, that you may find in the chairs or in the pew around you, and you can find our passage on page 991. Page 991. It is good to be back at the Shergrove campus for the last four weeks. I've had the opportunity, as each of our uh, teaching pastors have from the various campuses, to uh, do some switching uh, of the pulpits. And uh, we used our series uh, of relationships to uh, uh, get us out and to spend a couple weeks with each of the other campuses. And I'm here to tell you that in my visits to uh, the campuses of uh, our El Camino campus, our Aurora campus, and our Indian Creek campus, that God is doing great things in the Fox Valley area uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ through the humble work of not only yourself here at Sugar Grove, uh, but all over our campuses. And it is great to see how God is using the growth in the lives of people to transform and to change lives. And so it's good to be back and, and to uh, bring God's Word as we begin a new series, just a short four-week series dedicated on the subject, as you saw in the video, of prayer. Uh, learning a little bit more about what it means uh, what the scriptures tell us, what it means to pray as believers and our calling uh, to pray. And uh, I know the subject for prayer uh, can be one that can bring forth guilt. Uh, for many of us, uh, one of the things that we wish as Christians we would do more of is pray. And so when the preacher gets up and begins to tell us that we need to pray more and our prayers need to become maybe a little more weighty and a little more focused in on things that are important, many of us will find ourselves bowing our heads not in prayer but in guilt. But as even yours truly struggles with my own prayerlessness at times, this, this uh, series is not uh, made or, or created to cause guilt, but to show you the immense gift that God has given us uh, with the opportunity to approach the God of the universe with our thoughts and our desires, with our concerns and with our fears, with our uh, requests and desires for Him to minister to places we could never go or maybe never be involved with. Also to take time quietly before our Lord to give Him worship and adoration and thanksgiving for all that He is and all that He is doing in our lives. It is a reminder and an opportunity for us to be compelled once again as followers of Jesus Christ to get on our knees and pray. Now if there was ever a time if there was ever a week to start a series on prayer here in America, it would be this week, wouldn't it? I mean, we live during tumultuous times, and it is important that it would cause, the events of this day would cause Christians to pray. During these perilous times, we understand that we should be compelled to our knees to ask God to move in a way that our country hasn't seen. To be able to acknowledge that in our times of chaos, and corruption, and great difficulties, we have a God who loves us and has a great plan in store for us. That He can change the hearts of men and women. That He can break down the walls of racism and bigotry. That He is the God who can take warring factions and bring peace and serenity to those who are fighting all the way. It is amazing that in our text this morning that we learn that the same admonition to prayer was something that was true 2,000 years ago, and it is true for us today. In our text this morning, we are reminded 
of the priority that prayer is to play in the life of every one of us as Christ's followers. In our text, we're going to learn from uh, the great Apostle Paul, who is writing to his young disciple Timothy, who is a pastor, a young pastor, uh, serving in the uh, city of Ephesus. During that time, and under the leadership of Pastor Timothy, we learned that the things and times of Ephesus and the church were chaotic. The church was struggling with internal conflict. There were those who were preaching and teaching things that were causing people to fall away and to make shipwreck their faith. We also understand in the times of the Ephesus church that external conflict was taking place. You see, in first century Ephesus, there was uh, very little that a Christian could do without the Roman authorities being aware of it. To be a Christian in first century Ephesus was to understand that you were an adversary of culture, that you were a marked individual, because instead of giving allegiance and worship to Caesar, you would tell people that you would only worship the one and true living God in Jesus Christ, his son. And because of that, you would be hated, you would be mocked, you would be scorned, you might even lose your property and even be put into prison and even maybe put to death. And so in our passage this morning, during tumultuous times, during times of great difficulty, we are reminded by the Apostle Paul that in his times of great difficulty, during Timothy and the Ephesian church's time of great turmoil, they were called to pray, and so are we. So let's look at our text this morning, and as we do, I want to draw out six, yes, don't be afraid, six observations you have five written in your notes this morning. I'm going to add a fourth one. So number four is going to be a new one. That's extra credit. That's free of charge. I know you love that stuff. And uh, we're going to just go through and see what the Word of God has to teach us this morning. But let me go ahead and read and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Paul starts out in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, and he says the following. First of all, then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle in parenthetically he says I'm telling the truth I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth I desire then that in every place The men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we recognize this morning our utter dependence on you. Prayer reminds us of that truth, that we're not strong enough, we're not smart enough, we're not able-bodied enough, Lord, we're not um, clever enough to walk through this life on our own. And because of that, Lord, we bow before you and say, we need you. Without you, we know we can do nothing. 
And so you have given us the mechanism, the vehicle of prayer that we might approach your throne of grace with confidence, that we may bring our concerns and bring our desires and bring our anxieties and bring our troubles, that we could bring our requests of family and friends and maybe even those we've never met before, that we could lift up uh, those who are working uh, for the faith in far-flung places of the world. Lord, that we might pray for the salvation of those around us. Thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to speak to you as our Father, our Dad, and to share our concerns and, and our love for you. Lord, I pray that as we look over these next four weeks to the subject of prayer, that our prayer lives would be changed. That we would rethink and evaluate how our conversations are with you. Lord, I pray that as a result, the people of this church, Lord, even myself, would, would have a prayer life that invigorates and energizes our walk with you as we commune with you. And we thank you for it. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray all these things. Amen. The famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, was traveling on a, a Chinese boat from Shanghai to Ningpo. He had been witnessing to a man called Peter who was resisting the message of the gospel, but was under deep conviction. And during the course of the events of this conversation with Hudson Taylor, and due to the rocky waters that were underneath the boat, Peter somehow found himself falling overboard. Taylor panicked when he saw that no one made any effort to save him. Instinctively, Hudson sprang to the mast, let down the sail, and jumped overboard in help. In, in hopes of helping his friend Peter back to the boat. A fishing boat was close by, and so Hudson tried to solicit their help. But they wouldn't stop their fishing to look for the drowning man. Instead, they asked Hudson to pay them for their help. Not only that, but to Hudson's consternation, they wanted to barter for every penny that Hudson Taylor had in his possession. And once Hudson had agreed to a sizable sum, they agreed to help out this man in distress. It would only take a couple minutes of them dragging their fishing net in the water when they would find Peter. But it was too late. Peter was dead. They had been too busy fishing to worry about a drowning man. What a tragic story. What an unbelievable story. Right away, our hearts go to how calloused and, and how self-centered those Chinese fishermen must have been to realize that, that a man was drowning nearby and they were more concerned about their own financial gain than they were about saving a life. But brothers and sisters of Village Bible Church, let me remind you this morning, before you and I condemn those fishermen, we need to take the log out of our own eye. How concerned are we for people around us and around the world who are perishing without the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Do we care more about our own comfort, financial gain, and calendars than we do about people dying without a Savior? Do we uh, go about our business day after day, week after week, without a burden for those who do not know the Lord? We live in serious times, my friends. And these serious times should compel us to pray. But not ordinary prayers. Not dinner time prayers. But serious ones. When I use the phrase serious, 
what I mean is, is that there are lives of people at stake. And God has compelled us to knock hard on the doors of heaven, asking our Father to intervene. But what do serious prayers look like? Let me explain that when I use the word serious, I don't mean solemn. I don't want you to get this idea that I want us all to become monks and to go off to a a far-flung place in the world where nobody else is around, where we can spend our times in solitude in prayer. But what I'm calling us to is serious prayers that are significant, serious prayers that are substantial, serious prayers that seek to bring down the power of heaven down to earth. Prayers that will have us take notice that we serve an awesome and powerful God. Are we praying those types of prayers this morning? Paul exhorts his young disciple Timothy to become active in that process and for the church at Ephesus to do the same. But what do serious prayers involve? I want you to notice again six things this morning. Let's look at the first one. Serious prayers, first of all, need to be a priority. They need to be a priority. Notice verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions be made for all people. Let's stop there. The main point of this text is a command for us to pray. It mentions a couple things about this command that we need to listen very carefully for. First of all, we recognize it's a priority when Paul uses the phrase, first of all. Now, as parents, when, when we tell our children a list of things to do, we will usually add that phrase, first of all, or of first importance, or before you do anything else, do this. The reason why is we don't want them to become distracted. We don't want them to, to find themselves off track. And so we tell them the most important thing first. Get this done. If you don't get anything else done, that's all right. Just get this one thing accomplished, completed. And Paul says, first of all, this is of utter importance. If you don't get anything else right, get this right, pastor. Don't worry about your preaching. Don't worry about your programs. Don't worry about your assimilation tools. The first thing in the church Timothy, I want you to get is that you need to be a man in a church of prayer. What he begins to say earlier in the text is that he gives him a charge. Notice, just rewind for a moment to chapter uh, 1, verse 18. Just notice what he says. He says, this charge I entrust to you. He says, I've got a job for you. He says, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, meaning you've been called to pastoral ministry, you've been called to this church at Ephesus, and you've got a job to do. You've been entrusted by God himself to accomplish a job. Here's your job. That you may wage the good warfare. Paul uses the phrase, fight the good fight. That you would hold on to faith and have a good conscience that you would uh, make sure that you don't shipwreck your faith. How are you supposed to do that, Paul? Timothy is asking, "How, how am I supposed to get this accomplished? Paul says prayer must be number one. And he doubles down by not just simply suggesting it, but by commanding it. Notice the phrase, first of all, then, I 
urge. That word urge in the Greek is the word parakaleo. It, it literally means one who comes alongside and commands something. Well, how, what does that look like? Well, yesterday I was at Joshua, my middle son's baseball game. And as a dad, I'm sitting along the sidelines watching him, but there's a moment where I get up from my chair, and it's the moment that he finds himself in the batter's box. He's 10 years old, still learning the game. And I will go along the fence, and I'll have a conversation with my son. And I'll tell my son, all right, son, be a hitter. Protect the plates. When the ball is thrown and it's out of the strike zone, I announce, hey, good eye, son, way to go. When he's got two strikes on him, I say, hey, make sure you protect the plate. Swing at anything close. What am I doing? I'm doing what Paul says is a parakaleo. I'm urging my son by commanding my son to do certain things. But here is the difference of the word urge and, and uh, dictating or commanding sternly. Parakaleo is one who comes alongside, who gets as close as he can to announce a command for one, but who walks along in the process. So I announce all the time, come on, son, we're rooting for you. I'm here, man. Oh, man, hit the ball. I'm not doing it from some ivory tower. I'm doing it up close and personal. So Paul says, listen, I urge you. I come alongside you. I want to encourage you to be a person of prayer. But why is prayer such a priority? Why is it the foundation of the church? Why is it something we should be devoted to? Write this down in your outlines. There are three reasons I want to give you this morning why prayer must be a priority in the life of every Christian. Number one, prayer taps in to the power of God on behalf of others. Prayer taps in to the power of God on behalf of others. As Christians, we desire the best for people. And we, if we really love them, then the first thing that we ought to do is pray for them. To pray on their behalf. This is the first thing that we should do for a person. If we truly love them, is to ask God to work for them. Of course, God's answer to our prayer is always going to include, listen, you being an answer to your own prayer. So it's, it's a bit odd that we might pray for someone's needs to be met and then walk away with that prayer being the only thing that we do. And so when we pray for a brother and sister in need, Lord, I pray that, that so-and-so will be encouraged by you, Lord, that, that they will be blessed, that they will see you actively moving in their lives. Lord, I know you're not calling me to it, but I pray you'll call someone to it. No, usually when we pray, God is impressing upon us not simply to pray alone, but to be the answer to our own prayer in serving on the behalf of others. It taps into God's power on the behalf of others. We serve. The best way we can serve one another is to pray for them. Number two, for those that say, well, that's, that's hard. I'm a busy guy. I, I, you know, I've got a lot of things going on. Number two, prayer is the easiest way to love people. It's the easiest way to love people. You don't have to get out of bed to pray for people. It doesn't require financial sacrifice. It doesn't mean you have to have great physical exertion. It doesn't take a whole lot of time. 
But if we truly want to show love to people, we need to recognize as Christians that the easiest way for us to serve and to love and to care for others is to simply pray for them. But here's the thing. Isn't it true that if we're unwilling to do something easy for someone, that most likely we won't do the hard stuff? You see, for many of us, we say that prayer is too hard for us to do. And that is why so many needs go unmet. Why so many people find themselves hurting, discouraged, struggling to make it through a day. Because we say as Christians, we can't do the easy thing, God, let alone the hard thing. Number three. The third reason why prayer is of great importance is it reaches farther in its effect than anything else that we can do. If Christians want to do the most good possible to the most people possible in the shortest amount of time possible, then we better start praying. Prayer is our ability to do things that we can't do bodily. You just heard it this morning by the acres. Though we find ourselves here in northern Illinois... We are a blessing. We are an encouragement. We are a hidden power to them in the southern continent of Africa. And so we have this opportunity to go places that we never have gone before. Now recognize that that God doesn't just simply call us to these things, but He also compels us and, and deploys us to those places as well. And here's what I've come to know. That when I start praying for for things that are far from me, when I start praying for things that maybe I'm untouched by, God begins to give me a heart for them. God begins to change my heart. God begins to give me a, a, a desire to see how I might do more than simply pray, but how I might affect change in a personal and tangible and real way. We pray because we tap into God's power. We pray because it's the easiest way for us to love people. We pray because prayers are able to go farther and faster than we would ever be able to go on the most supersonic of jets physically. So if you want to bridge the context of of our passage before us, it would go like this in my own words. So Timothy, if you don't want to make shipwreck your faith, if you want to keep a good conscience then therefore I urge you first and foremost to fulfill the love command that God has given you to pray for all men. Because prayer taps into the power of God on the behalf of others. It is the first and most easiest of ways for us to love. And don't forget, Timothy, it reaches farther in its effects than anything else that we could do in the body. Prayer should be a priority. Observation number two, prayer, serious prayers, will involve great diversity. They will involve great diversity. Notice 1B, I urge you then that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Let's stop there. Paul says that when we tap into God's power and love people and effect change, that that's going to happen by us doing four things. The words that Paul gives in this verse uh, are distinct in meaning, but, uh, but they're not all that different. 
But there's a nuance to each of them. So let's look at them very quickly one at a time. He uses the phrase that we should give up supplications. The word supplications are prayers that stem from a sense of need. We offer supplications to the Lord because we lack and we recognize God is sufficient. We are impotent and we recognize God's omnipotence. And so as we look at our frailty and see God's magnificence and His majesty, we get on our knees and say, Lord, I can't do this without You. I need Your help. Lord, I'm hurting. I'm struggling. And so I give You these concerns that I have so that You may answer them with a perfect and true answer. He goes on to the second one, prayers. Prayers literally is a general term for our prayer to God. One commentary suggests that these prayers uh, literally is the word to request for needs that are always present. They're not specific needs, but the needs we need every day. So when Paul says we need to lift up hands of prayer, we need to be taking time and praying for the things, listen, that you and I take for granted. Lord, thank you for air. Thank you for food. Thank you for water. Thank you for a house. Thank you for a job. Thank you for children. Thank you for a spouse. Thank you for friends. All the things that we take for granted that aren't all that altogether that specific. God says, I want to hear prayers from you remembering that everything I give, everything that I have, comes from the good and perfect hand of God. How wonderful is it when our children come and thank us for something that we think goes unnoticed. When we think that we're doing it unseen, that our children come and say, hey, I just want to thank you. Thanks for being there. Thanks for giving me the things that I need for clothing and a good house. Thanks for being a mom or a dad. God expects the same from us. The third thing he brings up is intercessions. Intercessions means literally to converse freely. That's what the Greek word there for intercessions means. To converse freely. And it pictures someone who has executive access to a king or a person in authority. Literally one who can go uh, into the VIP room and when he goes in, you stand on the outside and the door is shut that he's able to have access to places you can't. And so we go to God and we create intercessions. And what we are doing is we are going on behalf of someone else to the VIP room of prayer, to the throne room of God, and we are asking and conversing freely with the God of the universe on behalf of others. Pastor Steve did that this morning. He prayed for us as a nation. And he went freely to converse with our God in heaven. And he said, Lord, bring peace. He didn't say, Lord, bring the Lombardo family peace. He didn't say, Lord, bring me, Steve Lombardo, peace. He said, no, Lord, as a nation, I beg, I implore for you to bring peace to us as a nation. You see, Steve has access to the God of the universe. And he intercedes on the behalf of others who don't even want to pray those prayers, who aren't thinking about those prayers, to go on their behalf and pray for them the prayers they don't even know they need to pray. Intercession. How about thanksgiving? This points to the fact 
that we must not express only our petitions or our requests, but also our gratitude to God for His gracious answers. The point of all these words is that we have different needs. We have needs at different times. But we must always stop and go back to our God and say, thank you for answering my prayer. Even, listen, when the answer you're looking for isn't what God brings. Thank you, God. You heard me. Thank you, God, for answering. God, I acknowledge that while I may not be happy with how things are, I know you are in charge, and that's good enough for me. We need to pray diverse prayers. Families, parents, this is essential for us as parents to teach our kids. Oh, even the Badal family runs this risk. We pray the same things. We get into our ruts. And, and trying to be accessible for our kids, we, we dumb down what it means to pray. And not helping our kids recognize that God is concerned not only with our meals, not only with our sleeping ability, but He is deeply concerned with all affairs, not only of our life, or the life of those we know, but notice the diversity for who we are to pray for. All people. All people. Have you ever been tempted to pray a prayer like this? God bless everybody all over the world in the best way possible. Amen. Well, I've taken care of what Paul is asking for. I have now, with one fell swoop, in less than ten seconds, prayed for everybody. Everybody's been touched by my prayer. Now I can go on with the rest of my day with my head held high that I'm a man or a woman of prayer. That's not what Paul is saying. Now let's dissect a little bit what Paul is saying. When Paul uses the phrase, all people... Uh, two assumptions can be made. First of all, what Paul is telling us is that we better be praying for every single person. Good luck. Hope you don't have anything planned for the day because you've got 7 billion people to be praying for. I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. In fact, I'm here to conclude the Greek construction of Paul's writing in the original language, when he uses the phrase in this passage, all, it does not simply mean all people everywhere. What it means is all kinds of people, a diversity of people, a people of all locations and places, a people of all tribes and tongues, a people of all races and backgrounds. He's articulating that we cannot simply pray for those we know or are comfortable with, but all people. God wants us not to pray for every single person. We can't do that. He knows that. But He wants our prayers to be for all kinds of people. The idea here is don't get in ruts when you pray. Our context is king here. Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus that was partly being torn apart due to the fact that there were Christian Jews in the Ephesian church that were telling people that the only way you were in the kingdom of God is if you could find your genealogy in the Jewish genealogy. In verse uh, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Nor devote, the, I'm sorry, he says in verse 4, Nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. 
So people were most concerned, can I find a connection with my forefathers back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because if I'm not a part of the Jewish nation, then I'm not a part uh, of the kingdom of God. And Paul says, listen, Timothy, when you pray, don't just pray for the Jewish people in your midst. Pray for the Jew and Gentile alike. Don't just pray for the people that you like. Pray for those you love and like and those that you might even find yourself calling your enemy. You see, Paul is articulating that we need to be active in praying for all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Village Bible Church, let us be known as a people who push out the boundaries of our concerns, who let our prayers not be limited to any one group of people or kind of people. Village Bible Church, let us enlarge our circle of love that we have for the world. Let us never be called close-hearted, denominational, nationalistic, elitist, or racist in our prayers. Let our prayers embrace all kinds of people. Those in high places, those in low places, those who are white, those who are black, those who are Latinos, those who are Asians, those who are Africans. Let us not pray for just the Republicans, but the Democrats, and even the Green Party, if you will. Don't just pray for your family, but pray for your worst of enemies. Enlarge your heart until it embraces all of the world. That is what Paul is announcing and commanding for the people of God to do. To pray with such a deep love in our hearts that we will pray for all types of men and all types of women, both the good and the evil alike. Because listen, when we do, when we find ourselves, listen, praying for people who gun down police officers in Dallas, when we pray for, or for situations where police brutality may be at stake, when we find ourselves praying for terrorists and even the worst of ISIS rebels, we fulfill the words of Jesus who said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Expand your sphere of prayer. Observation number three. Serious prayers need to involve those in authority. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. We've got it, Paul. For kings and all those who are in high positions. Let's stop there. What Paul is saying is pray for those officials who you really, really like. Who you voted for. Who you like their positions and platforms. No, here Paul singles out that we are to pray for those in positions of authority in our governments. Now you say, well, that's a lot more easy for you, uh, Paul. You don't have to pray for President Obama. That's real easy for you. Don't you know, Paul, that Congress has less than a 7% approval rating right now? Who's going to pray for those yahoos? That's too hard. Let me remind you, at the time of Paul's writing, the book of uh, Ephesians, and Paul's writings to Timothy, in First and Second Timothy, Paul is under at least house arrest, if not in jail, for preaching the gospel. 
the one who has passed the laws where you will either worship Caesar as God or be put to death is a man named Nero, a maniac. Nero, the one that Paul is commissioning Timothy to pray for, is the man who, listen, this hits close to home, who would execute both the apostle Peter and Paul. Nero would be known for putting to death thousands of Christians, and he wouldn't do it in a nice, humane way. Nero wanted his streets to be lit in first century Rome. And the only way that you could get good lighting is to take an object and put tar and pitch on it and then set it aflame. Nero was quite the efficient leader. He said one way to get rid of Christians once and for all is to dip them in tar and then hang them from the light posts for the streets and light them ablaze. They would be lit on fire so that they might die. This leader is the leader that Paul says we ought to pray for. Notice in our passage, Paul never calls the Christians to public revolution, but to prayer. Why would he do that? Doesn't he know that if we get enough Christians together and find just the right candidate to make America the country it needs to be, if we just rally around the right man or right woman, then we can change this place once and for all? Why doesn't Paul say that in the text? Because Paul recognizes the will and plan of God. That it is prayer that removes tyrants and dictators. And it is prayer that will once and for all establish peace and not war. The plan of God includes prayers of all kinds for all kinds of people. And He wants us to recognize that these prayers need to be for all types of people, even the people that we dislike in places of authority over us. Why then should we pray for kings and those in high positions? Let me give you two reasons. First, the reason why God compels Paul to write to Timothy to pray for those like Nero is that we are to pray for those who are at the center of our persecution. Paul is telling them to pray for the man who would bring them the most fear, and the most trepidation. To pray for the one who makes their lives miserable. Notice, nowhere in the prayer does it say, and please, Lord, smite down Nero. Well, how are we to pray for him? Within the construction of the Greek uh, language of this passage, we are to pray the prayers for the kings and all those of the authority just as we are to pray for our own family members. We are to love them. We are to pray for them. We are to ask for God's blessing in their life. We need to ask that God would open their eyes so that they might see salvation if they don't know the Lord. We need to pray that they might have discernment, that they may be the ones who pass good and righteous laws. We need to pray that if they're rebelling against the hand of God, that it would be God, not us, who thwarts them in their abilities to do so. That's important, because it's only God who can remedy the problem. 
It is God who lifts up and places rulers on their thrones. It is God who moves the heart, the book of Proverbs says, of a king like a stream. So we lift up our leaders, whether we like them or not, knowing they are in the hands of Almighty God. Second reason why we pray for leaders is because they are central to the lives of so many people in so many circumstances. Why do they matter? Why pray for our president and our congressmen and even at the lowest levels our officials here in the Fox Valley and Sugar Grove area? Because the decisions they make, how they deliberate those decisions will, will affect a great many people. Think for a moment of the king of Nineveh during the days of Jonah. It was the king who called for a fast. It was the king who called all of the inhabitants of Nineveh to repentance. How amazing it might be if we would have our leaders come to know Jesus. To have godly individuals, whether in the White House or in Congress or on the, on the Supreme Court, to have leaders within our schools, to have leaders within our communities who love Jesus and who take the example of Jesus Christ into their meetings to discuss the issues that will affect all of us in so many ways. We need to pray for those who make big decisions on our behalf. Now what I, might, what I will say here may ruffle some feathers and that's okay. Nowhere in our text, listen, are Christians called to protest or badmouth their leaders. Now you would say, we live in a country that affords us that freedom. And I'm not going to tell you that you don't have free speech. You have free speech. But let me remind you, your free speech is not free when you, bow, when you uh, place it before the feet of Jesus Christ. You can't say what you want, when you want, how you want, and say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus says your tongue must be bridled by the Word of God. And so I want to remind us this morning, as difficult as our, as our political landscape is, as miserable as you may think our president may be, listen, the Bible makes it clear that the will of God for believers is that before you open your free speech mouth, that you're praying for your president and all those in authority. Hard words. Hard words even at time for your pastor to remember. We must pray for those in authority. Observation number four, we're moving along. Serious prayers result in a certain activity. This is the extra credit one, so I won't take, it, take a long time with it. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. When we are people who pray for all types of people everywhere, and when we are praying as a church and as Christians for all those in authority, then Paul gives us a little bit of a proverb. Not a statement of truth all the time. Not a statement that you can say, yes, if I do this, then this will result. Notice he uses the phrase that we may, may. It's, it's, a, it's a word of disclaiming. Hey, it might not happen that way, but it may happen. Well, what may happen? When we pray for all types of people everywhere, and when we especially lift up those in authority, there's a good chance that you will live a quiet and peaceful life, being godly and dignified in every way. Let me explain how that happens. Listen, when we become a church 
who is known to pray for all types of people, prayers of blessing and ministry of our God, good things will happen. Many of you know years ago I was asked by, by our former governor, um, Pat Quinn, to open uh, the two houses of Congress during one of their uh, budget impasses. And the person who was playing the part of speaker that day uh, was a Jewish man from the northern suburbs of Chicago. He did not want, knowing I was an evangelical preacher, to preach the name or to pray in the name of Jesus. He says, listen, I don't want to hear anything about Jesus in your prayer. And I said, well, that's just foolishness, sir. Your boss, let's talk about this for a moment, your boss has asked me to pray. Prayer is me going before the greatest God that I know of, who is more powerful and all-knowing, who can deal with every situation, including the stupid situations that you have in here in Springfield. God can accomplish them. And my goal is to go to that God on your behalf. There is no better way for me to honor you than to go to the best one I know possible. What you are saying is utter foolishness. I'm not asking you to worship him. I'm not asking anybody else. And I said this, if there was a Muslim man who would call upon the name of Allah on my behalf, I may not agree with him. I may uh, have questions about his theology, but at least I would know that Muslim man cares enough about me that he would go to his God on behalf of me. The foolishness at times that we have. But notice, when we pray on behalf of others, good things can happen. Mario and Jeremy, for years now, have served the Caneland School District community. They have done so, doing things, how can we help you? Where can we serve you? How can we pray for you? And over the years have prayed and prayed and prayed. And here's what's amazing. For those that think, oh, public schools, they won't allow the church to do anything, that's hogwash. If you care enough and love enough, you know what they'll do? Hey, you're an important group of people. We want you engaged with us. Mario and Jeremy are in the schools during lunchtime ministering to high school and middle school students every week. Every week. How does that happen? When God's people pray. When we pray, God gives us avenues and opportunities to share a greater understanding of the gospel where there seems to be no other way. Let me explain another one. We have been a, a, of, of great service to the community of Sugar Grove over these years. We live by a motto, if Village Bible Church closed, would Sugar Grove know we ever were open? And we want to make sure that if we ever close, people are like, whoa, what happened to our community? Something's missing. And so we have over and over again gone to the, to the city and said, how can we help you? How can we serve you? How can we pray for you? Numerous times we have prayed for Sean Michaels, the village president, uh, both here when he's attended and other opportunities we've had that the Lord would bless him and give him discernment as he serves this community. Well, we were building our building that we have over where the kids are at. And Sugar Grove had lots of stringent uh, codes, and, and, and it was becoming so burdensome that we knew that we weren't going to be able to do the building project. They were making a decision that would, turn, that would add a, about a half a million to three-quarters of a million dollars in cost to the building of our, our building. We said, you know what, we don't have that kind of money. And we went before the village officials 
And something amazing happened. We asked God, the people of this church to pray because we said, there's no building. We can't go any farther unless the officials change their mind. And you know what happened? During the conversation of the village board, people began to say, you know what, I don't want to say no to this because my kids go to their VBS. And they, they love the VBS. And we need to give them a place to hold VBS. If we say no to them, we tell our friends that we're not for them, another said. And they do a lot of things for us. In fact, they just won the Citizen of the Year Award last year. Let's help them. Let's not hinder them. And so they said this, variance, 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 variance. Go build your building. You don't need to do all those things. You, we want you to have the building to do ministry. Why? Because when we pray and people see that God's people are more about love and service and standing as an advocate before them, before their God, people may, not always, may be changed to allow you to live a quiet and peaceful life. You see, when we do that, we also recognize, listen, that when we pray for certain things, we can't pray and then go live our lives different. Notice Paul says you pray these things so that you may be dignified and godly in every way. You can't talk to God one way and walk amongst the people of the world in another. Consistency is the key. Observation number five. Serious prayers rely on God's ability. Notice verses 3 through 7. I've got to land this plane quickly. Here's what it says. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here's a truth that I want you to recognize. Why do we pray? Because we go to the only one who we know who can accomplish what we're asking. Why do we pray for the lowly homeless bums on the street and the president of the White House? Because we as Christians recognize and know a simple truth that saving people is the heart of God. He loves to see sinners brought to salvation. Our beliefs tell us that the only way lost people will be saved is if God draws them by His Spirit. That people will only be saved when God opens their eyes and gives them faith to believe. That they'll only be saved when Jesus pays the ransom for their sins. And so we go knowing the words of Zechariah 4.6 that it's not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Listen, you will never be able to talk a person into the kingdom of God. I don't care how good your uh, apologetic skills are. It will only happen by the work of God in the lives of people. And so we pray, and we go to the one who has the answer. We go to the one who has the tools in his toolbox to remedy what concerns us. And so we are to go and reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And who are we to go to? We are to go to God and pray, God, do your thing. You're the only one who can do it. Listen, God is the only one who can change the lives of people. The hard-hearted co-worker the unbelieving husband or spouse, the unruly neighbor. It is only God who can change the heart of a ruthless dictator. Let me remind you that the very man writing this letter 
was once named Saul. And he is an answered prayer of a man who Saul gave approval for his stoning, Stephen. And Stephen prayed that God would not hold this sin against him. And one day, in a Damascus minute, Saul was saved. No man, no woman is outside of the power of God. And that's why we pray. Finally, serious prayers will be done in what I call common unity or to, in community. Verse 8 says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Where are prayers to be done? Everywhere. Who is to lead the time of prayer? Literally, it is the males. Why would, why would he say, guys, you got to lead this? Probably the reason why is he's calling the elders, who he's going to talk about in the next chapter, elders, you got to lead this. Elders, you got to be men of prayer. Elders, follow the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 6, that you don't get yourself into waiting tables, but you become men of the word and prayer. Elders, you're going to lead this. You're going to help people see it. What's the criteria given for people to pray? Do you have to have a lot of knowledge? Do you have to be saved for a certain amount of time? What does he say? That you would lift up holy hands. God calls us to holiness. And he says the only criteria for us to pray is a desire to be holy. To be right with God. And notice it is to be done in unity. Without anger or quarreling. The church isn't to be a place known for strife or discord, but a group of all kinds of people coming together and praying with one voice that God would change the hearts of people and make a way for the gospel to be made known all throughout the earth. Let that be true of Village Bible Church. On one of his visits to Europe, a very famous pastor of over 150 years ago, Charles Spurgeon from England, met an American pastor who said, I've long wished to see you, Mr. Spurgeon, and to put one or two simple questions before you. You see, in our country of America, there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence and success in ministry in Britain. Would you be good enough to give me your own point of view? What makes your ministry so great? After a moment's pause, Charles Spurgeon responded, It is simple. My people pray for me. I hope that you pray for me. That God would use my humble attempts to preach for the conversion of men's and women's souls. I pray that you will pray for yourself. That God would use you to lead lost sinners to a saving knowledge of Him. And that you would not be content until He answers. I hope that you will pray for your neighbors, that you will pray for your friends, that you will pray for your children and their friends, that you will pray for your family members, that you will pray for the people of your city, that you will pray for the leaders of our nation, that you would pray that God would convert many and that He would use us in the process. That God would uh, call upon us to pray for our missionaries, to give them much fruit. That we would pray for the people groups all around the world, especially those that are suffering from war and famine. For those that have no Christian witness, that God would be pleased to save multitudes for His glory. 
men that we would lead our families to deep and profound times of prayer that God might do mighty things in response to us asking. A.T. Pearson once said, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locale that did not begin with united prayer in the church. Let's not pursue our own interests while men drowned nearby. Our number one priority a first and foremost activity is to pray that all people be reached with the good news and that Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, will be the ransom for many. Let's pray. Father God, we've heard a message on prayer. Now, Lord, make us be active in prayer. Lord, take away the cobwebs of our prayerlessness and move in our hearts to pray like we've never prayed before. To pray prayers that we've never prayed before. Lord, I pray that we will go on behalf of kings and all those in authorities. That we will go before You for our families and our friends. That we will go before the strangers that we may not even know their name. That we would even go before You and pray for our enemies. Lord, forgive us for our prayerlessness. And move in our hearts a heart of prayer so that we may honor You and we may see the answer to our prayers in the saving of many to Your glory and to Your honor. Lord, I lift up the hundreds of volunteers that will be serving this week. The more than 400 kids that will come into this place for the next five days. And I pray that You will open the eyes of little ones that they may see You as the one and true God. That they will see Your Son as the Savior of all. That, Lord, it will move in such a way that revival will break out in our communities. That families will come to know Jesus. That they will turn from their sin and bow the knee to Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that You will make the work of our volunteers fruitful and meaningful. Lord, keep our eyes on the true prize, the salvation of lost souls. Now, Lord, we pray that You will go before us in the comings and goings of this week. Use us so that we may honor You in all that we say and do. It's in Your Son Jesus' name we pray and close this service. And all God's people said, Amen.